carjacking old lady at a red light. Pull a gun on the owner of the liquor store. You think it's cool, act a fool if you like. Cuss out a cop, spit in his face. Stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think it's tough. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here today by our co-hosts and stars of this show, Mark Wiley and Will George. This is a day at the yard, common sense pitching with Wiley and Will. Got another great guest here today. Before we bring on the guys to introduce our guests, I just want to thank two groups of people. First, our audience and our followers, 57,000 and counting now. 74 countries were listened to, guys. So you guys, Mark and Will, you guys are global now if you weren't before. 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. Make sure at the end of this show, give these guys five stars, write them some great comments, because much like Major League Baseball, we also battle the analytics of the podcast world here. So take care of that after the show. Thank you, audience, also for pushing us so hard. We're now part of iHeartRadio's powerful podcast network. So if you stream on any of the other devices, fantastic. Make sure you hit iHeart. Let them know they made the right choice. Second, to our newest and our first sponsor, we finally took a sponsor on. Uh, thank you to Blackout Coffee. Their slogan is Be Awake, Not Woke. And I know I'm drinking my blackout coffee here. I know Will bought a bunch of espresso. I'll have to send some down to Mark. I got my blackout coffee mug with my blackout coffee hat on, even though we're audio only. You'll have to take my word for it. Drinking my espresso for this very important podcast today. And uh, thanks to those guys for taking a shot on us. And uh, if you put David, capital D-A-V-I-D, all caps with the number 20 after it at checkout, because of this new friendship, they're going to give you 20% off your coffee purchases. The second order you do, You'll have 15% off in perpetuity. So 20% off your first purchase. Buy as much as you want. Pass it out to your friends for holiday time. For the rest of your life, you get 15% off. It's a great friend. Any friend that loves baseball and coffee, they got me on that. So with that, Mark and Will, welcome back to your show. Great to be here, guys. Thanks, Dave. It's going to be fun today. Yep. And, uh, you're going to introduce our guest today? Yeah, I'm going to uh, introduce Dickie Knowles. Um you know, as we always talk about here, relationships that we build in the game. This is a guy that uh, has become a very dear friend of mine uh, with an inspirational story of spending a life in baseball of uh, 48 years, I think now, Dickie. And uh, he's uh, was uh, originally drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies uh, out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, Harding High School. Uh, he made his major league debut with the Phillies in 1979. Uh, he pitched in the Phillies organization in the minor leagues, uh, also with Cleveland, the Cubs, the Orioles, and the Yankees uh, in his major league career. And uh, uh, he was part of the Phillies 1980 World Series championship team. Uh, went over to the Cubs, the Rangers, the Indians, the Tigers, and the Orioles. Uh, in 80, as we said earlier, he uh, they won the world championship. And Dickey was known for knocking down George Brett. Uh, and uh, he's a lot more than just that, but uh, he wasn't afraid to pitch inside. And I think that's why every manager that he ever played for loved him. He was an aggressive competitor that we talk about. Uh, in 1987, he was traded for himself. 
one of the <laughs> three three players in baseball history that it happened. And uh, in 1983, he began his journey to become sober. Um, Dickie became sober, still is. Uh, he's one of the finest Christian men that I know. Uh, he became a member of the Phillies Community Relations Department. Uh, and he is the Philadelphia Phillies Employees Assistance Professional. And uh, as our listeners don't know that uh, baseball players are human too and they need help. And he's been there to help so many people. It's uh, incredible and continues to give back. He served on the Pennsylvania Drug and Alcohol Board, the Keystone Drug and Alcohol Center. He was named the Humanitarian of the Year by the Sunshine Foundation in 1997 a humanitarian award from the Philadelphia sports writers in 2010. And in 2019, he was honored by the, by the Phillies, two great ex Phillies, David Montgomery and Richie Ashburn achievement award. Um, we want to welcome Dickie and uh, really look forward to uh, hearing his life story in baseball as uh, a person who's helped so many and had a great career. Welcome Dickie. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it, Will. Yeah, it's good Dickie, to be here. We, we, uh, we're so excited to have you because, you know, we've really, all the podcasts we've done, I don't think we've had anybody with your expertise on yet. And, uh, and someone like you with your insights can, can really help a lot of our listeners, not only the, the, the players themselves, but, but the kids, uh, I mean, the, uh, the, the parents. Um, you know, my first question is, is, as coaches, we're always trying to find ways to make genuine connections with our players. Uh, with your experience, what is a, a good way to get started with that? You know, I, <clears throat> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up a name, Doug Manzalino. And when he was with the Philadelphia Phillies in our, in our run back in 2008, 9, 10, 11, um, you know, really it went from seven to about 12, but, um, <clears throat> Doug came in one day and was talking to all the coaches and he said, I, I want to give you guys three things. And the first one, I, I don't want you to ever forget what I'm telling you. First one is trust. You have to have trust. And if you don't have trust, you're not going to help any of our players. The second one in his mind was, and I like this one is you have to, that the player has to believe that you have their best interest at heart. And I'm sitting in the back of the room listening to that. And I'm thinking, man, I like this trust. And you got to have, then the next one, you got to have their best interest at heart. And the third one is they have to believe that you can help them. I've kind of used that in, in, in the EAP uh, world as much as I've used in the baseball world. And I believe it's something that you, when you're talking about, you know, how do you help someone, uh, how do people, uh, how do you, how do you make a difference in, uh, someone's life or, uh, one of the worst books I ever read, read in my life was the road less traveled by Scott Peck. If they say it's the psychiatrist's, uh, um, manual. And it's also one of the best books I ever read. And the first three words in it is life is difficult. I believe that's a good, uh, a, a good way to, to treat life in itself. You, we know we, we should treat others like we want to be treated, but 
But if a person doesn't trust you, I think trust is the first thing. And then, like I said, I believe in that second thing that he said too. They have to believe that you have their best interest at heart. And of course they want to know if you can help them. Well, that's, you know, those are, those are really good points. And I'm glad you, they were broken down into three different things because, you know, for me, you're exactly right. You know, you know, I've always looked at it this way and I've, I've had discussions with other coaches about players they didn't like. And, uh, and I told them, well, it doesn't matter if you don't like them. It doesn't matter if they don't like you. The point is, is that you got to still try to figure out a way to make them better. And I think that's really important for somebody that you don't really hit it off with when you're a coach, when that's your job, you've got 14 guys out there or something and you've got to deal with them and you got to get them to perform at the highest level. Um, you have to figure out a way to get them to trust you. Um, you know, it, it's, if you just quit on them, um, you're not only hurting yourself, you're hurting the ball club um, and you're certainly hurting them. So, um, you know, my take is, is that I agree with the trust and sometimes the trust is not easy to get, get to, and you've got to put some thought and effort in to figure it out how you can. I agree. You know, another thing too, Mark, is uh, I think sometimes uh, when, when, when you want to set where that other person sits, helps you out a lot to understand that person. I think uh, David Montgomery, when I first took this job, I was scared to death to take this job. I didn't think I was qualified. And when David Montgomery brought me in to talk to me about being an employee assistance guy, I laughed at first. Uh, but then I realized he was serious. And one of the things that he said to me was, uh, if, you get, if you help one person, you, you've, you've, you've made an impact. And I, I left there thinking, yeah, you, if you've helped one person, you've made an impact. That's kind of, but in baseball, that's what we do. In baseball, we want them to play at the major league level. If we've played this game, this game's been so great to us. We want them to experience the same thing. We want them to be the best that they can be. You're exactly right. You know, it's a, it's a funny thing that, that, you know, like I remember when I first managed in the minor leagues and I just came out of playing and I thought I could make everybody a major leaguer. I thought I could help everybody be a major leaguer. But over time, I realized if I could just make them the best version of themselves, some of that stuff will just take care of itself. And, and I know as a coach, and I know a lot of coaches feel the same way I do, you know, some of my biggest successes in my own, my own mind were guys with way less talent that I was able to get them to be able to compete at a really high level. Um, it wasn't the guys that, that uh, were star players that were going to be great uh, regardless of who their coach was. They just needed coaches to kind of direct them. Um, and and uh, it was the guys that really maybe wouldn't have never got an opportunity unless you showed them some things. And uh, those are those are some of the things I cherish the most. My memories are not some of the great games that great pitchers pitched. It's some of the, the great games that guys that were way lesser known or moments when they excelled against someone at a key time in a game uh, that I felt like I was able to help them.
Dickie, I got a follow-up question on kind of what Mark said. Um, you know, the power of deference is a wonderful thing. You're approaching these young men. You don't need anything from them. You're just trying to give. I think that's the best way to get people's attention. Um, what What are two two questions? What are some barriers uh, outside of baseball that you've helped without you know without using specific names that you've helped kids overcome to reach that goal? And then uh, second, how do you how do you kind of walk that fine line of you know, we all want to say if I were you or put ourselves in their shoes. And to me, that's the, that's the easiest way to, to turn somebody off. Uh, it doesn't show empathy. Talk, talk about those two, two points, if you don't mind. Well, let me, let me go to the first point. Um, this may be a little off the wall, but <clears throat> you made me think of something. And uh, once, once, I be, once I decided to give this employee assistance uh, deal a, a, a thought, uh, I really thought about it and said, well, first thing I need to do is get as educated as I possibly can to what EAP really is. And one of the things I had to do was go to Rutgers summer school, um, you know, two weeks of Rutgers summer school, uh, you know, four or five years in a row. And the first day I got there, David Montgomery said, you make sure you sit in the front row. And I was probably didn't need to do that. But I said, a man that believes in me asked me to do that, sit in the front row. The professor wrote on the board, if you think you're the reason why that people get help, you are, and he put a uh, a word I won't say on, on the air. And then he said, if you think you're the reason why people get sober, stay clean, et cetera, then you are this. And then the last one was, if you think you're the reason why they stay that way, then you are a piece of, and he spelled it out. And he said, does anybody in the audience not understand this? And I raised my hand and I turned around. I go, I'm the only one that's got my hand up. I need to put my hand down. He goes, okay, are you in recovery? I said, yes, I am. And he goes, well, you're the only honest person in here. What we do with people, it doesn't matter if they, um, you know, if they, if they are dealing with anxiety, they're dealing with depression, um, they're dealing with a girlfriend situation. My first year in baseball, we had a young player that's a hall of famer now that had a girlfriend uh, uh, issue. And I didn't think I was qualified to talk to him about relationships at that point in my career. And I, I missed that opportunity. And uh, 10 years later, he told me about that. And I missed that opportunity because I was afraid to uh, address that situation to be a listener is the number one key factor in helping someone, in my opinion. If you listen and you listen to them, you've already showed them value. But when you talk about, you know, the first part of your question, when you talk about all the things that we're helping people with in the employee assistant, we now have hired a wonderful individual with the Philadelphia Phillies, and she's our mental health professional. And now the referral is much easier. An EAP refers and assess situations and finds the right counselor for these people. But the most important part of the EAP is not just to refer and assess that person's problem. Because once you've talked to that player, talked to that person, that coach, whoever it may be about that problem, if it's anxiety, you want to get on it as soon as possible and listen and make the right referral or if it's depression and then, you know, you have to be qualified enough to determine if that's clinical depression or if that's situational depression or if it's uh, anxiety is, is, is performance anxiety, uh, another area that deals with players today and, and staff. So whatever the whatever the mental health situation may be, 
It's very important to be able to be there with them, make the diagnosis, make the referral. Uh, the follow-up is the most important po- component that I think we've missed out on in, 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 in this world, the way we're going today. Follow-up is essential. And, and, and I think that kind of answers the first one. And now if you will we'll kind of go over that second one, David, just a little bit more, because I kind of forgot it. Second part of that. Absolutely. I, uh, you know, I said, when, when you're approached with, with somebody, the first instinct, and I'm, I'm guilty of this is I want to put myself in their, in their shoes where even if it's the phrase, if I were you, and, and to me, that's not true empathy with all the situations, because you're being, I mean, you're being, uh, hit with, uh, you know, just listening to some of the, the issues you, you mentioned, a lot of different things in no particular order every day. How do you walk that fine line without saying, putting yourself in their shoes, but but showing empathy? What are some of the strategies, I guess, well, here? I, I, think it, I think you're showing empathy if you can put yourself in their shoes. I think it, I, I think what you're saying is, if it's kind of like that thing when you're telling people today in baseball when you're my age. When I was your age, you know, yeah, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah, but you have to be, you have to have the knowledge and the skill to be able to do that. And I do. And it, there's times during the pandemic where I didn't get much sleep. There's times we were losing people for the first time ever. We were having people dying at a, an unusual rate. We had some kids in Venezuela that couldn't go home and their aunt died. Then their mother died. The grandmother died. And uh, they're stuck at a hotel. And, I, and because of COVID restrictions, I couldn't go see them. Well, I found a counselor that was willing to go see them face to face because I think that face to face is very important. So not to tell them, you know, how they feel. I mean, the worst thing you can ever say to someone, as we all know, that loses a loved one is I know how you feel Correct. even if you've lost yours. And I think that kind of uh, you have to have the, the ability to say uh, to help them by giving them the, the education, the concern. Uh, the empathy that you talked about and letting them know they will know if you care. And I agree with you. You have to, you, you have to stay away from that. I know how you feel yeah. or it, it, this is what I would do or, or tell them, you know, try to be them is what, what you can't do. You have to be there and you have to have the, the correct advice. And I think it goes back to that first thing. You better develop some trust right away. Oh, absolutely. Well, go ahead. You had, you had a follow up. Yeah. Uh, Dickie, you've mentioned David Montgomery's name a few times. And for someone that's covered the Phillies organization since 1992 and grew up in the area, uh, your organization may have the greatest family-like atmosphere in all of baseball. And I think David Montgomery was a very big part of that. And I'd love for you to Talk a little bit about him, and we've lost him recently, uh, but what a great man he was. I know every year in spring training, you guys used to have the – everybody in the organization would come in, even your area scouts during spring training, and you would have a big dinner there in Clearwater. And guys like Jim Fergosi were invited, who was once part of your organization, and other people that were there scouting were invited. And it was just uh, – I think that culture that was created there, and I think it's still being carried on by the people in your organization. We've talked a lot on here about how good your guys' clubhouse was this year. You could see that those guys truly cared about each other and loved each other. But, I, you know, 
you mentioned David's name. I'd love for you to talk about him because I know he was a big part of your life, him and Dallas Green and people like that. You know what, Will? I, uh, uh, I, I, I can speak about David for an hour, so I'm going to shorten this. David was everybody's uh, favorite. And yep. Montgomery was, he, he, he ran it as a business, but as a family there, he wanted you to have family time. He demanded that. Uh, you don't see that too often in the business model today. David wanted family at the ballpark. And a lot of people would say that's not going to happen, but it did. It happened. And uh, really Carpenter started all that family at the ballpark uh, kind of, wanting everybody to understand that you're away from your family, your family here. And we want to know and what's going on with you and help you. And we want to know, David would meet you as you well know, Will, and know the first name of your uh, last born kid and your first born okay. kid and your, your mother, your father and your wife. And, and he would never forget those names. That's a, that's a trait that I wish I had because I have not been able to master that. And I don't think I'm going to, but that was some things about David. He knew you and he never forgot you. He knew your family, never forgot them. He always would ask you about your family. I'd get off the elevator sometimes and David goes, Dickie, how you doing? How did your boys do last night? Which one pitch, Nick or Chris? Or how's Brittany doing in her soccer? Um, he always would have a kind word, uh, but he was tough too. Uh, yeah. People don't know how tough he was. If you were not doing your job, uh, he would let you know, but he would not let it linger and, and he didn't want to hear about it, but once, and he would bring you in and tell you, I don't know how many times David, um, in the very beginning of my career, when he asked me to be an employee assistant guy, I, I said no, and he didn't take no. Uh, and so I think one of the things that he did for me that which is speaking on my behalf was he put me in a position that I went in one day and said, I know why you chose me for this position. I'm paying all the sins I did in my career. And I started laughing and he goes, no, I took your experience. I took the fact that you wanted to be a counselor for kids in the drug and alcohol world. And I looked around and he said, you know, I was back in DuPont when they started the EAP programs. Or I knew people from there. He said, uh, I was familiar with that. I was familiar with the very beginnings of, uh, of uh, how Kodak and some of the other places, Coca-Cola started using people from their front line to train them to be go between, between labor and management, which was uh, Almaca, which later became EAP. And he said, I kind of like that. And I'd like to try that with you. And I laughed and I said, try. I said, uh, uh-uh. I said, if I'm doing this, I'm going in with both feet. He goes, that's why I chose you. Right. So David knew his people too. And he loved the game of baseball. He loved the Phillips. David always told us that the fans were so important. Yep. And I don't think we got that until we started to win again. And then we looked up and you come to Philadelphia to play when that stadium's packed. You yourself know, Will, they can make a difference. Oh, but gosh. You David know, was big on the fans, the city of Philadelphia, but also big on family. You know, and John, John figured it out. Uh you know, when you guys clinched this year and he came out and was giving balls away to the kids and shaking the fans' hands, he's he, he's grown into a really great owner as well for you guys and leader, it looks like, too. So, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to bring that up because I know you mentioned his name. And uh, from the outside looking in, I've always envied your organization because of that family-like uh, atmosphere that's always been there. 
Yeah, he was he was a great man, and to uh, win the David Montgomery Richie Ashburn Award was probably uh, for me. It, it, and it was kind of like the only it, it, it just like it's the only uh, you know I never wanted to win an award. I really didn't didn't want to win an award. I always felt like when the David Montgomery Richie Ashburn Award came up, I never thought about receiving that honor to receive that award. But not until I received it on the field did I understand the impact it had because it gave me a, you know, David had passed at that point. So Lynn was down there and it just gave me a, uh, you know, we can stand on the baseball field. Mark knows this. We'll stand on the baseball field some days when we go out there and all the memories and all the things that we did in our career comes back. We develop our character being minor league players. I've always felt like that. That's where we develop our true character. And I, I wouldn't trade the minor league experience that I went through for anything in my life. I think it molded me to become the person that I am. Took a while, but I also think it molds you to become the uh, player. Mark said something about, uh, and I wanted to comment on that. Mark said something about, you know, developing players as human beings. A healthy, capable human being is a better, healthy, capable baseball player. We know that. But when you're developing players in the minor leagues to try to become major leaguers, even if they don't, they're going to go in their life better off, I believe. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right, Dickie. You know, it's it's a funny it's funny you said that because if you if you're you know, I've been lucky enough to be around a lot of major leaguers and guys that played for many years and achieved unbelievable things. Um, the ones that I've played with and against in the minor leagues. When I've met with them and we start talking about the minor leagues, you can see exactly what you're talking about. Their memories are unbelievable. I'm going, these guys remember everything about, you know, the playoffs. They remember everything about those games that we we played against each other. And that was back in double A. And I'm going, that's amazing. But you're right. That's where you learn how to compete. That's where you learn to be a teammate. That's where you learn to do all these things in the minor leagues. And don't for a minute think that these star players that played 15, 20 years in the big leagues don't still remember their minor league years. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I'm sure Will's had some real discussions oh. with Cal over the yeah, years. They were roommates in the minor leagues. I was just think what Cal's accomplished and he still cherishes those minor league. Oh thoughts. gosh. We laugh all the time. The night, uh, you guys probably remember when Bob Feller used to come and uh, they'd do a home run derby, throw against like the two guys leading the team in home run from both teams, like between games of a doubleheader or before. And Cal Cal took Feller deep and he knocked him on his ass. (laughs) And, and, you know, know, Cal was my roommate and he goes, that old bastard knocked me on my ass. (laughs) (laughs) you know we still laugh about that every time we get together so it's uh no you're right dickie uh i i didn't have the fortune to play in the big leagues but i've been in the game for almost as long as you you know 46 years and uh god's blessed me and the memories and the friends and the, the relationships and Cal Sr. once said, and Ray Miller talked about this in Instructional League, baseball's like life. You know, you're going to have your ups and your downs. you got to stay emotionally in the middle. You can't be a roller coaster in life, and you can't be a roller coaster in baseball and get too high or ever get too low. 
And I think that's some of the best advice that I got in my life to take whatever's dealt to you and move forward always, continue to move forward. And that plus your faith gives you a, a better view of life. You know, it's funny. I used to always like to point out to players <clears throat> that <clears throat> you can be terrible for like the first month of the season and you're still the most valuable player at the end of the season, end of the season or pitcher of the year at the end of the season. You know, that's where it reflects life where you have these ups and downs and, you know, where do you come out at the end is what's important. And Mark, uh, Mark, they, they like think, to focus on that. I think you highlighted that my first year coaching in 86 was the year that Tudor started the year 0 and 4 and went 21 and 4 or, or whatever. You know, he went undefeated the rest of the season or he went like uh, you, you, John Tudor had that unbelievable year in 1985 with the Cardinals where he, you know, I think he was at 19 and 0 with like a 1.2 ERA at one point over the all that over like 25 starts. And we talked to the kids about that. You know, he did not let that 0-4-5 ERA destroy his season. So it took a lot of mental toughness to move forward and do what he did. You know, it goes the other way, too. You know, I remember actually the first year when I managed you, Will, in, in AA, I, I, I remember the players. It was like a month into the season and we were playing against somebody and all the players were like – all giddy about some guy on the other team that was hitting like 400 and and he was doing unbelievable stuff. And they go, this guy's unbelievable. He won't be here for long. And so and I go, and you know, fellas, we're a month into the season. Let's just see where he is at the end of the season. Well, later in the year, I'll never forget this. We're playing the same team. And I walk over to the manager and uh, I said, Hey, I saw your lineup. Where, where's like Johnson at? And he goes, oh, we sent him down. And I said, oh, really? He hit like 400 the first month. He's, yeah, but then he didn't get a hit after. And, then, <laughs> and, 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 and I remember meeting with my players before the game. And I said, hey, guys, remember that guy, Johnson, that you, you were all excited about hit 400? Guess where he's at now? I said, he's back in A ball. I said, hey, it's a whole year. You can't get too excited about being too good. Over a short period of time, it's a grind, and it's how you come out at the end. And uh, it, it helped me make a point to the players. You know, I got a story that I got, I got to tell this. I've never thought of this before, but, you know, I'm big in leadership programs, and I used to do them a lot. But I was not – as a player, I wasn't big in goal setting, and, or at least I never thought of it. And then when I got towards the end of my career, I realized how important goal setting was. I started to – you know, I watched Ryan Sandberg become a great player. I played with him, Counting Instructional League and the Phillies and, uh, and, and, and the Cubs for nine years. And people don't realize that. But I watched this guy make himself into a Hall of Fame baseball player with his desire, discipline and dedication and all those good things. But I was once told something about confidence versus comfortable. And I used to side with comfortable before confidence. But we all know confidence is the single most important factor in sports, really, if you think about it, how strongly you believe in your ability to achieve your goals. And I, I had I had memorized that statement. I hope I got it right, because I know there was something else to it. Something, something like nothing more 
harmful than confidence than failure. And failure is our inability to achieve what we set out to achieve. But I've always come up with this thing and say, failure will never overtake me if my determination to succeed is strong enough. Now, stop me if I get too long, but I want to tell you a story that happened to me, and I've never told it before, and that's the honest God's truth. In 1989, because it was a AAA story, and Mark made me think of this, I got sent to, well, I was with the Yankees, another Dallas Green sign at the end of spring training because he was a Yankee manager. And I went over to the Yankees trying to keep my career going in 1989. I had a great spring training, got sent to Columbus, became a clipper. Bucky Dent was the manager and, and he wasn't pitching me at all. And when he did pitch me, it wasn't very good. It'd be, uh, you know, he'd bring me in to, in the eighth inning to face one hitter. I'd walk him. And I was out of the game. And I think I told Will this story one time before. And Hippolito Pena would come in and give up a double and I'd have a no inning pitch with a run. And the, and April, May, about the end of May, I had an ERA of about 1,900. And I didn't think I was going to, I thought I was, I never got released. As bad as I was in my career, many times I never got released, at least with that word released, it just didn't offer me a contract. So I'm trying to think of this girl's name. I think it was Katie. There was a girl that was a disabled girl uh, and she couldn't speak very well. And I don't know what, what, what Katie had, but I know she said in that little, and I know Mark and Will, you've been there to that Columbus old Clipper stadium yeah. down the right field side. They had the handicaps, uh, first base side, they had the handicap section and I'm throwing in the bullpen. So my performances were so bad that I would get up in the eighth inning and, and start throwing to try to find my slider. And I would go down there and throw the ball. And, and I got so my confidence was so shot that I was down there just messing around, throwing the ball. And I started to, uh, one day I go, I'm never going to pitch again here. They're not going to pitch me. So I started acting like a fool, throwing pitches all over the place. And I see this young girl and she can't talk very well. And I have a picture of her somewhere and she starts shaking her hands and laughing. I was making her laugh. I said, well, I'm doing something right. That was that poor me attitude that we're, that, that an athlete can have at times because you lose your confidence. So, and I understand, I, I'm a big John Wooden guy. I understand failing to prepare is preparing to fail. I know all those John Wooden quotes and stuff, and I wasn't preparing to be successful. And I'm so all of a sudden, every night she comes, she wanted to see me throw. So I, I started taking it more serious. I said, you know what? And I would turn around, smile at her, but it gave me a little bit of peace and comfort. But I said, this young lady, I'm making a difference. And she, I'd go up to the screen, talk to her and everything. But then I said, you know, being goofy is I'm, I'm, a, I'm an idiot down here and my career is not over. And I started to work on that slider and I started to diligently work on that slider. But I also was having her. She was my she was my uh, motivation at that time. Wow. And uh, we had a guy named Darren Chapin on the club and I was telling him one day, I said, you know what, I'm going to start setting goals in life. I've always talked about goals. It's time for me to believe in them and do them myself. And it turned me around, and naturally I didn't pitch after that, but a little bit in 1990, but it turned turned me around in many ways. And it and as if I could write a book, Living Life Backwards, I'd probably set goals a long time ago. And so anyway, I, I told Darren Chapin, I'm going to finish with a three ERA. Darren Chapin was an ERA magician. He could figure it out in his head faster than anybody ever seen. He said, Dickie, you'd have to throw 50 scoreless innings. I said, well, that's my goal. And they all started laughing, going, yeah, right. Well, the rest of the year, 
we were playing in Louisville and, and Chapin was pitching. He was our closer and he walked the bases loaded. Couldn't get it. Couldn't get his splitter over. And Bucky Dent brought me in with no outs and gave me the baseball. And the first guy hit a one hopper to Steve Kiefer at third base that was blasted. And instead of going second to first, he went home to first for a double play. It was hit so hard, uh, which probably wasn't the right play. But I threw a shutout in and we won the ball game. Uh, 51 innings later, I ended up with a 3.89 ERA. I only gave up one earned run the rest of the year. Wow. Uh, is that wow. is that kind of like a good story? Well, that story didn't hit me until they gave me my pitcher of the year award, uh, reliever of the year award, and I dropped it in the trash can in Columbus on my way home. And about two hours into the ride, I go, man, I should have kept that. That meant more to me than I thought because what it meant was you, you, I was able to change my thinking. And I did it through some goal setting and some, some belief in myself that I had lost. And I think it's a good story. I just wanted to share that. Oh, that's a great story. Um, you know, I always believe, and I, I mean, I know somebody that's been through all the things that you've been through um, uh, can understand it, but I, I always feel there's a breakthrough moment for everybody. You know, I used to talk to the players and I said, you know, well, you might've had it in high school. You, I said, that's where I had it. I said, but you know, guys can have it in the minor leagues. They can have it in the big leagues. They can have it to where they change their mental outlook. You know, I mean, for me, I'll never forget. I was in high school. We we're playing our championship, not a championship game. We were playing a, uh, our rival. Um, and I was in the game and I guess I just got scared and I couldn't throw strikes. And when I did, they just hammered me all over the field. And I, 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 I never felt so bad in my life in baseball. And I was feeling really sad for myself. And I, I went to bed that night and I remember waking up the next day and I said, I'm never going to let that happen to me again. I will never be afraid again in a game. And uh, that changed me the, the rest of my life. And it could be anything. It, couldn't, it could be a mental uh, way you see yourself or it could be something physical that you figured out that totally changed you and gave you the kind of confidence you needed. I you agree, know, Mark. That's mental toughness right there, brother. Mental toughness. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's that. That's if you can teach that to somebody, it doesn't matter baseball or whatever it is. If you can make people more mentally tough, and like Will says, you know, baseball's like life, and and you can't, you know, you got to be able to handle those ups and downs. You can't, you know. I, I honestly, I don't have a lot of patience for people that feel sorry for themselves. I, I never have. I guess it's just it's just so counter to the way I look at things. Uh, no matter how bad it gets, um, you got to be able to find something to 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 keep you going moving forward. And you're you know, not gonna you're probably not gonna like this, but I'm gonna make a comment about failure. We call baseball a game of failure far too often, uh, I believe, because I think that if you talk, I, I interviewed a lot of great players. Uh, when my career ended, I interviewed a lot of great athletes from uh, basketball, football, baseball. One of the common things that all these guys have is they don't, they don't, they, you know, like Michael Jordan has said that he didn't know how many game winning shots he missed. And apparently he missed more than anyone, but he made more than anyone. Um, you know, 
I, I believe that we can teach mental toughness, but I believe that we don't know how to do it no more because we're afraid to break players down. I think that coaches, when I look back on my career, Mark, the coaches that I had to this day, I would die for. I mean, they meant more to me than, than I could ever, you know, I had Ruben Omero uh, senior. I had Dallas green. I had John Vukovic, I had Johnny Oates. I had, I mean, I had all these great men and uh, uh, Lee Ilya and Jim Snyder. I had a Jim Snyder was my manager one day and he came over to watch me throw on the side and I'm throwing the ball hard. Everybody knew you could, you could throw hard. And he looked at me and he goes, man, you really throw hard, but you can't throw strikes. And he walked away. He's going to be my manager. I was going, Whoa, Oh, dang. So I spent the whole spring training trying to throw strikes and we're going up the peninsula. We're on a bus and he pulls, says, sit down beside me, pulls out a baseball and hands it to me. I go, what is this? He goes, if you don't know what that is, give it back. And he made me the opening day pitcher. I made the all-star team that year. So can we teach mental toughness? I, I think you can. I've heard um, many times people say you're born with it, but to me, all mental toughness is, is, it's hard work. It's getting knocked down and picking yourself back up. It's if you get knocked down five times, get up seven. I mean, I think we can teach sure. mental toughness. You know, it starts with an attitude, though. Definitely starts with an attitude. I think that, you know, I always laugh. I've seen it so many times over my life in playoffs and World Series. When I watch players, and particularly what I, you know, I've had something to do with that player. I know him personally or whatever. It's always amazing to me, and you could probably remember this. You'll be watching a World Series game, and they'll bring in like the fifth guy in the bullpen or whatever. Um, you know, the game they're down by four, and uh, they put him in a World Series game, and the guy throws like three shutout innings. They come back and win the game. The rest of the series, he's like one of the go-to guys. They put him in the game. He shuts them down. The next year, the guy's a stud. He never was a stud before. Right. But all of a sudden, he accomplished something that he probably thought he could never do and then realized that actually I'm pretty damn good. And it just reflected and went that way for the rest of their career. Um, you know, Affelt was that way. Yeah. Um, for me, when he was at the Rock, he was at Kansas City, then he was at the Rockies. And he's a great guy. And he was a pretty good pitcher with the Rockies. But when he went to San Francisco Giants, he totally changed to be a guy guy. Yeah. And uh, I've seen that with a lot of different players when they, they get put in those situations. And it shows it can change. You know, you can change you just having a, a, a performance at the highest level. You know, Dickie, you shared your story. I always like to share mine was uh, I signed out of high school like you. I led the Appalachian League in walks and wild pitches, um, go to instructional league, and uh, Ray Miller sitting behind the bucket, and I'm throwing BP to Eddie Murray, Richie Dower, and one other guy that was going to winter ball. And uh, – you know, Eddie had appeared in the big leagues and done well. And, you know, Ray said, just throw strikes. He goes, you know, you don't have to tell him what's coming. You know, use your fastball, your curveball, your changeup. And I threw like 15 minutes of BP to them. They didn't hit 
hardly anything off of me. And I had this moment of clarity that I didn't have to throw every pitch through a wall to get somebody out, that if I just threw strikes, hitters get themselves out. So that gave me the confidence all through that instructional league in 77 and then to go on and win 12 games the next year in the Florida State League with a two ERA and throw about 12 or 13 complete games that year that, gosh, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be afraid of the hitters. You don't have to throw any harder than you're capable of throwing. It's actually more important to throw strikes, mix your pitches. So like it was such a learning experience and like a light bulb experience. And, you know, I, you know, I think so many people are afraid to fail and don't realize that, you know, when you fail, it's just a learning experience that you move forward to succeed. And, and I think all those little things that we were taught built the mental toughness in, in, in me, not only as a pitcher, or as a pitching coach, but in my life and, and everything that we do. Good point. You know, um, you know, you, you've been through so many things that, uh, that, that many of us haven't experienced. And, uh, um, you know, in today's baseball and in life, there's, there's a lot of severe conditions that are showing mental conditions that are showing up. Um, you know, I was just wondering, how do you get players to deal with, with all the social media stuff that we never had to deal with? You know, like I always, you know, I used to laugh when people, um, uh, used to say that, uh, um, uh, what's the word they use when you're uh, making fun of somebody? And uh, um, oh god, what's the word? I don't know why I can't think of it. But anyway, uh, you know, we used to just say toughen yourself up. But now these kids are bombarded. You know, if you have you have somebody that makes fun of you in high school, uh, you knew how to deal with it. You know, but now they got TikTok and Facebook and Twitter and all these things, and people and these kids are just getting hammered. And if you're in baseball and you're a, a public figure, it's even, it's even more, uh, it can even be more challenging. How do you get players to deal with that stuff? You know, Mark, at that, that social media probably would have buried me and may, may have kept me out of the big leagues today. And you're so right. It's such a different time. I had so many problems in my minor league career that somebody would have taped or filmed some of the stuff that I did or things things that I don't remember that I did, but uh, it would have really, uh, um, you know, social media is a very difficult, uh, I mean, if you walk into any major league clubhouse now, um, there's some good, let's just, let's, let me go over the good parts of social media first. Cause I think that's something that, you know, I go to bed at night. I try to put my phone somewhere else, but boy, if it, if it bings, I'm up looking at it. And so I try to put it in another room now because I'm on call 24 seven, but First thing we do in the morning is we look at our phones um, and, and there's a negative aspect of social media. We know that it causes self-harm. You know, we know that it, it can create anxiety, depression and isolation. And, you know, a human being can can feel a lot better when he can see the eyes of another human being when he's talking to him about his problems or talking to him about life or talking to her or whatever. But when you're communicating with another human being, we know that's that social aspects being damaged by this phone, this social media phone that we carry everywhere. You walk into a major league clubhouse and 
you see a certain things, you know, you, you got players on their cell phones. We, boy, Lee Ilya would have tore our clubhouse up if you'd have seen us on a cell phone. But there are an aspect of that where you can stay in touch with your wife. Hey, how's uh, Brittany doing? Okay, I'm off the phone. And it's allowed now. Or there's social media where you can, I can FaceTime my uh, grandkids, uh, you know, in the morning and see the little two and a half year old who loves pop-up more than anything. Or I can, uh, you know, look up stuff on here that's going to help me. Uh, so there are some good aspects of it. So I think the, the, the that addiction part of social media covers the good aspects as well as the bad aspects also. And we know that the, the harmful effects of it, uh, you're talking about a subject that affects our kids, um, you know, uh, they don't want to be left out. So they go on social media. Uh, when, when it affects our kids, you know, it's affecting ballplayers. You know, I, I don't want to bring up the part where a guy and Dusty Baker uh, elaborately did this, where a guy just made it out or a guy just hit a home run. He's in the dugout looking at his swing and looking at everything, and you know, and, uh, the, the velo, the pitch and the exit velocity or whatever. Some of those <laughs> things kind of bug me, but I'm an old school guy. But, um, you know, and I can see there is a component of that where you would like to look at it. I remember walking in spring training one day and trying to get a guy to do something that he needed to do on a therapeutic use exemption. And he's watching himself pitch uh, from years past. I'm going, you know, you could put that down and get this done. It's you're, you're, why you're busting my stones about this. But I think sometimes that when we're looking at what's going on with social media, we forget a couple of things. It, it can be addictive. It, it, it activates a part of the brain where you release the dopamine, the feel-good substance of the brain. And so that can cause a, an addiction because if you're on that social media, you're, you're not in reality all the time. You know, you may, you, it doesn't matter what you're watching. You might be listening to music, but I think there's some damaging aspects of it that, that kids will look at because if they get left out of something, they can find out on social media right away. Uh, whereas Will didn't invite me to play golf yesterday. I don't even know about it because I ain't talked to Will yesterday and he's just talking to Will today. And I am not going to ask him why he didn't invite me to play golf. He left me out. But, boy, I can see it on social media with all the pictures he took. Like, well, why didn't he invite me to play golf? <laughs> so there's a lot of aspects of social media. But I think one of the parts that uh, that we got to be concerned about because when, when, when you activate that, sub, that part of the brain, which is activated through sex, food, personal relationships, social relationships, laughter, when you laugh, you secrete hormones 400 times more powerful than morphine. So I think we got to need to laugh a little more in this world. But, uh, you know, when you have those things uh, going on with this phone and your computer, predominantly with the phone with me, uh, then you can get into some addictive behavior without even knowing it. And it can disrupt sleep. I think a lot of ball baseball players were reporting sleep dis- disruptions from the fact that they were remember the era or the time when they were getting on the television and using their games to play until the middle yeah. of the night. Yeah. Um, and now they do it on the phone. Yeah. So uh, I think there's a lot of problems that we have to be aware of and we have to monitor that the best that we can within an organization. You have to, you know, you have to reach out and find out if you're having sleep issues. I, I imagine our trainer's first thought is, well, how much time are you spending on social media? Um, yeah, well, I heard they just did a study of kids and 
kids are staying up till four in the morning yeah. um, online. Then they're tired at school because they're, 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 they're looking at their phones. And a lot of parents have had them put their phones away when they go to bed at night because they're finding out the kids are just getting under the covers and looking at it. Um, you know, the, uh, okay. I had a brain cramp earlier. It was, it was bullying is what I was trying to get to. Bullying. Um, you know, there's such a big thing about bullying now. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, you know, it just, you know, from old school, we just say, Hey, tough it out. You know, if I think of how I would deal with somebody I felt was getting bullied, I'd probably show them, you know, how much nonsense there was to the person that was trying to do it and, and how, it really, this person didn't have a life. This person, he's focusing on you when you've got so much more going for yourself. Uh, I would try to divert them to to see it in a realistic manner. I don't know how you do it as a professional. But what would you do? Well, I think you got to use conflict resolution. You're talking about bullying or or any of this stuff with social media, and um, and and that's what I would do. I would get I would get the get them together. Uh, because if you don't, it's going to continue. I'd get them together, especially a word like bullying. You know, nowadays with all the policy and procedures, you'd have to report that, which I don't agree with all the time with some of the things that are going on on the field. I think you can, I think you could get those two individuals together and set them down together and, um, and, and, and get to the point. Um, you know, a conflict resolution is, is, is a way to do it. Um, but, you, you have to be aware of what's going on because I think we're going to see more of this. I don't think we're going to see as much of it on the, I mean, look at these young, you're talking about teenagers. I wonder how many players are involved with this, with the aspect of sex, the aspect of uh, uh, dating, the aspect of, I mean, uh, you can airbrush or whatever they call it. You can take a, you can have your photos on there. The young girls can put their photos on there and older girls or whatever, and they can change their appearances to make themselves look totally different and totally better. I mean, I was back in the day when you had the models on the magazines, they airbrushed them. Well, they can do that with the, with the phone and they can get a, a delusional self image of themselves, or they can start saying, I want to look more like what I just presented on social media than what I really look like. So there's a lot of problems I wish we could just get rid of phones and I'd have to call Will on a, a normal uh, phone. Hey, I, I, you know, hey, Will, how you doing? Well, I'm leaving a message. Get back with me. Yeah. Sometimes I wish we would go back to that day because social media, it's a subject that is very difficult to address because there's so many issues with it. And I think you're right, Mark. I think with the bullying part, um, you know, you would have to, you'd have to just, I think you'd have to get to, get together and, uh, uh, I don't know how many, I know there, I, I, I watched a television program on what we're speaking about and it was all about cyberbullying. And I think the number was about 10% of all teams reported being, being uh, bullied. And I laughed at it until it happened to one of my grandkids. And one of my grandkids made a, made a uh, mistake of saying something in the community that was, if I told you what it was, you would laugh, but it became a big deal for him. And he didn't mean it, but yet it was all over the social media and, and it kept him from, he couldn't sleep. He was really having a lot of difficulties with that until, um, 
you know, he finally uh, went back in a community with those kids that he was with and said, hey, I didn't mean it that way. I was just trying to be goofy. And then um, uh, some of that lightened up for him. But it was a very difficult time for him. Wow. You know, that is amazing because, you know, I filtered myself constantly on stuff because I know how somebody got a hold of it. Um, it could be problematic. You know, I, 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 kids don't have the same filters we have and we screw up all the time. You know, like, you know, you say something you wish you hadn't said. Well, kids say it to be funny. They say it to, in today's society, you just get bombarded. And, and I don't know how you can teach kids how to filter or to think before they act, because that's all part of being a kid. You don't think before you act, you know. Um, but, you know, that's all part of the educational system now that maybe never had to be as big a part that they need to teach kids the ramifications of even saying something stupid or silly or taking a picture of themselves with a freaking uh, gun or something. Or, you know, Will and I have talked about this before. You know, we're always very reluctant around ballpark personnel when they're female uh, secretaries, people we know, because, you know, you can't just go up and hug anybody anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you, you kind of kind of shy away or... from it. I mean, they have to acknowledge it. I mean, they have to do it more than you would, because, uh, you know, I don't go do it on my own because it's not that I don't trust the person. I just, you know, there's just so much things that happen. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the best things I ever heard and Dickie, you remember when uh, my brother and I and Joe Singley ran our scouts team here in Delaware one of the best things I ever heard, and it was a coach that said, look at it like this. When you post something on social media, it's like you just won the MVP of the Super Bowl. That's how many people are going to be have access to what you're saying. So take a couple seconds before you say anything on social media to think about what you're saying because you don't want to have – two seconds of saying something stupid hurt you in your future. And, you know, Mark, we had it with one of our guys we drafted who said something as a kid and people combed through his social media from five years earlier and found something and he had to go to a sensitivity training. Uh, It's, it's, it's not, it's not a good thing. You know, you really, have to teach your kids, you teach your players, you just teach them to be smarter. Yeah, it's, you it's know, not easy. It's, you know, it's, it's sad, but it's, uh, you know, you're going to have to pay the piper if you do make mistakes and you just hope it doesn't last too long. Um, you know, I got another question, Dickie, you know, kids grow up today and they're more in their own world than any players ever were or people. Um, and it makes it a lot tougher building that, that, uh, that team, that team understanding of how, you know, teammates are supposed to be and how to understand how to be a part of a team and what their responsibility are to others, because they're so caught up in it being about them, uh, throughout their life more so than ever. You know, how do you deal with that, you know, helping somebody learn how to be a teammate? Well, <clears throat> you know, 
Mark, we you said it earlier. We we have all these programs now in place with social media and stuff. Maybe we need to put one in place for this subject. Um, you know, and I'm going to put an end to the social media thing because one of the things we have to understand is social media is created to be addictive. It's created to be that way. So we 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 talked about that. Baseball players had it in the MLB meetings, and you know, before the pandemic and. You know, we 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 talk to them about how to speak to the media and everything else. Maybe we need to develop a topic on how to be a good team player because the game is almost turned into a uh, an individual game uh, in some respects today. I will say this: I know that people get tired of hearing us talk about well when we played and all this stuff, but the game of baseball in the seventies and eighties was very was probably some of the best baseball ever played, but. Um, the team concept of this really is it bugs me. We were fortunate. We'll seen it. We were fortunate uh, on our team with the with the Philadelphia Phillies this year. I never seen a team with better character, and I could go into some of the things they did away from baseball, which made them a great team of character. We had the kid Corey Phelan who passed. What Schwarber and Harper and and uh, Wheeler and Nola uh, and the whole team, all the way to Sosa to everyone. And, um, and Marsh, what they did with this kid is truly, 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 truly amazing. They gave him his big leagues. The kid died of cancer. And maybe we can discuss that later. I'd love to. It's a great story. But they, they, they are a great team of character. They played team baseball. Of course, they played team baseball at the end, too. They all went in a slump at the same time, which I would have <laughs> never seen. But it was a great team. They turned this city upside down for a couple of years. Um, Team baseball in the, has to start in the minor leagues. The classroom is the field. I think sometimes we're uh, we're 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 almost got a and and I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but this is my belief. We almost got an LA fitness type of thing going on in sports today, and 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 uh, everybody wants to get bigger, stronger. They want to get more. It's all about performance. They want to be faster. And yeah, we do go in the weight room and we do have a, we have a really good program going on right now. Uh, and it's called performance training uh, where guys are going down there. I think this is the time of the year to do that. Um, but I think we need to be on the field more and more. Uh, a lot of, a lot of people disagree with that in this culture today, but I enjoy batting practice. I think when, if I had a bad baseball game and I got ripped and I'm out in left center field with Bob Boone or, Jody Davis and I go, I mean, I swear Kendrick was sitting on that slider. I swear that, you know, I've gotten uh, Jack Clark out a thousand times, man, and he's never hit my slider. And those two guys would look at you. So anybody was going to hit that one. It hung right up there for them. I think those are very valuable things that you you get discussing things with a team. Your team is out on the field. I like the fact that we used to take batting practice and even infield. And now we, our team is in the clubhouse and there's few guys hitting on the field. There's most of the guys hitting in the cage and then your pitchers go out and throw and uh, maybe I'll be proven wrong that this is the way to play the game, but I don't, I'd like it the other way uh, to develop a team, a good team, because you're not going to win unless you're a team. Uh, you're not going to be successful unless you care about each other, unless you unless you know that, uh, that together everyone achieves more. It's a simple thing, but that's true. So when you're talking about 
team. I think that starts, you start learning to be a great teammate. Uh, I've, I'm trying to think of who said this, and maybe it was Cal Ripken. I don't know who said it, but uh, I know Cal Ripken's a great team player, and it may have been Pete Rose. It might have been uh, – I uh, can't remember who said it, but someone said uh, the most important aspect of baseball, and I may have was Pete Rose said, is number one thing I want to re- be remembered by is a great teammate. I don't know who said that, but I think that's what I would want somebody to say about me when I left the game. Not that he was a tough player, not that he was a, a good player, which I wasn't, but, hey, he was a great teammate. I would love to hear that, and I think that's so important. So – Mark, to be able to teach that, you know how to teach it. I know how to teach it. Um, Will knows how to teach it because we know it starts. Yeah. The classroom's on the field. If you make an error, you know, you make an error, you're playing third base. It's easy to say, well, hit that next ball to me. Hit that next ball to me. It's easy to tell yourself you got to have that positive approach and you've got to be able to say, man, I made an error. I'll pick you up to the pitcher. Hit that next pitch to me. But it's a whole lot nicer when that shortstop says, hey, man, stay down. You're good. You got this one. Come on, let's go. Or that pitcher says, hey, I got you. Double play. Or that shortstop makes an error. Pitcher turns around and says, hey, I'm sinking this one, brother. You're going to get this next ball. Turn that double play. Little simple things like that may sound too simple, but you, they're very important. You know, Dickie, like on, on, on that thing, uh, unfortunately, kids grow up going to showcases as individuals now. We grew up playing on teams. So we bring them into our culture, but then we have too many guys on teams and players are moving all over the place. So teams, when we signed, we used to have a group of guys, probably 20 plus guys that we played with the whole season every year and then we got promoted to the next level or guys got released but we were more together like now when we you know we you and i see it and we you know each team has 35 guys there half of them don't don't play but once a week or get a an inning a week i mean there's there's no building of what the phillies ended up having was a group of 26 guys that pretty much stayed together all year and I watched your guys' celebrations. Those guys truly loved each other. You know, when, when, when they were in the clubhouse celebrating, there weren't little groups of guys off on their phones. They were all together celebrating their, their, their success. Well, that's, the, you know, that's a tribute to general managers when they put a bunch of players that are not connected, right. sign them to a t- deal they've studied they've had scouts find yeah. out the character and who the leaders are so you get a bunch of leaders together that's that's really important it's all it's more important than talent because you got to have a certain amount of talent but but if you don't have that to where you have enough leaders on your club that are guys that will tell you the truth and you know and going back to the minor leagues today they don't stay together long enough they don't win in the minor leagues you know, like I'll guarantee you the best organizations win in the minor leagues as they do in the big leagues. And kids come up and they're used to winning and they're used to people holding them accountable. Now they move so fast. How can guys hold them accountable? Because they don't get to see them enough. And, uh, you know, it's a, industry-wide, it's an issue of how you develop players. And, you know, 
It's analytics doesn't play for developing a player. It's a human contact and teaching people how to deal with other humans. That's as important as teaching them how to hit a curveball or throw one. So, you know, for me, minor leagues, you hit it on the head. The minor leagues where you learn all this stuff, where you learn to be mentally tough, where you learn to be a teammate. And when you don't spend enough time there, we're in problem. And it's problematic already because they don't do it in, the, in amateur baseball. They don't stay around together. So <laughs> it's conducive to being a, a me, me, I, I uh, uh, sport. Hey, uh, hey, Dickie, do you want to tell the story? Uh, you know, Dave said we're going to have enough time. And I don't think Mark and I mind going over to you, Mark, a little bit about that young man that passed away. Yeah, I think it'd be a good story. It's, we got about 12 minutes to go, so we got we got time. I would love to tell the story. Uh, Corey Phelan was a young 19-year-old pitcher with us. We signed him. Sal Agustinelli signed him out of uh, Huntington, uh, New York, Long Island. And the kid was a the kid was uh, uh, everything that you would want, Mark. He was a great teammate. He believed in uh, pumping up others. He he was the uh, Carlos Ruiz was telling a story. They just put Carlos Ruiz in the uh, Philadelphia Hall of Fame uh, last week, and Carlos was telling a story. I said, Carlos, how did you know this kid? He said, I went over to see the Latin guys down in the uh, Montgomery room, and he said that the guy that opened the door was. And and at this point, Corey had passed and Corey had opened the door and said, hey, how are you? The Lord gives us a good day to play baseball today. Let's go. And Carlos goes, hey, I'm Carlos. He said, I know who you are. And I said, Carlos said, I just found this kid to be so enlightening for for me to walk into a place that this guy knew who I was, but made sure he was going to tell me that if you need anything while you're here, let me know. And he was 19 years old. So that's Corey. But I met Corey. And the uh, with the Phillies down in instructional league, and every time I come across this kid, he always had something positive to say. He was a good Christian kid, but he wanted to be a baseball player. He loved baseball. He wanted to do. He wanted to play baseball more than he wanted life at many times. So Corey was uh, uh, he was rehabbing an injury, and he was down in Clearwater. And one day he came up to me. And he walked beside me and sat down and said, Dickie Knowles, tell me some of those stories, baseball stories. I said, all right. So I told him a story. And the next day he came up to me and he had talked to his dad and, and he had talked to Chris and, and he called home and said, dad, do you know who Dickie Knowles is? He says, yeah. He said, he knocked down George Brett in the 1980 World Series. So he comes up to me the next day and says, hey, tell me the story about George Brett. Of course, I said, I don't want to tell you that story. Let me tell you about Andre Dawson, Cal Ripken or Pete Rose. So let me tell you about some successful baseball players. And so I never told him the story. I'm sure he knew it. And so uh, April, around April of uh, the following spring training, he's got some problems and he doesn't understand what's going on. And so he passes out in a shower and ends up in the hospital and called 911. And he was going to get checked anyway for something. And so they sent him to a cardiologist. I believe his heart rate was up and they found a mass in his chest and it was about the size of a football and he was diagnosed with uh, non-Hopkins uh, lymphoma. And uh, so he was treated for that and immediately had to go home to, uh, to, uh, to Sloan Catering up in, uh, Catering up in uh, New York. So, uh, you know, it was a very emotional thing. But I didn't understand the emotion. I mean, I've been around when we've had kids diagnosed with cancer, and I know some kids get 
get better. And I know it can be a very traumatic thing, but everyone was uh, distraught, uh, crying. Uh, the whole ballpark just shut down. I had never seen that before. And as a 19 year old kid and you know, spring training was a little later. Um, so he went and then got diagnosed. And so he decided to come back by the complex and say goodbye to everyone uh, while he was going home. And his dad and mom drove up and we had the tents down there in Clearwater on the side of the road. And he got out and he looked very bad. And the first person he looked at, he goes, Hey Dickie. And I didn't even know the kid knew me that well. And he goes, Hey Dickie. And he, he walked into the tent and all the kids got gathered around him and everything. And he, uh, he ended up uh, going up to Sloan Catering and going through treatment. Well, Joe Girardi decided to bring him to the Phillies uh, when they played the Mets. So Joe brought him into the clubhouse and he walks in the clubhouse. And I understand I wasn't there, but he made a big impact on the clubhouse. I think his first response was to Bryce Harper. Hey, Bryce, when are you going to homer again? It's been a while. And then uh, he was kind of close to Bailey Falter. He says, hey, Bailey. You still here? And if you recall, we were sitting, you know, that's another thing, Will. We sent them to AAA, back, AAA, back, you know, up and down. We can do that all year long. So Bailey was that guy. So he goes, hey, Bailey, you still here? So he kind of cracked everybody up, and they kind of got together with him, took a picture with him, and uh, they loved him, and he just impacted people. He impacted people more when he walked up to meet you than anyone I've met in my lifetime. And I'm going to be 67 years old this month. And I've never met nobody like this kid. He was magic. And he was just a godly kid and loved baseball. And so they, they kind of gathered around him, took a picture. And uh, Joe got fired. And Rob Thompson took over. And they're in New York again. They invited him back. And he was very sick then. He had been through some chemo and was having some difficulties. And uh, spent half the time in the manager's office throwing up. But then Schwarber went in and got him and brought him down to the dugout and the father, put him in uniform, uh, which is probably illegal, but it's over and done. We got it done. And he's, he had his big league. He sat on that bench with them. And, uh, you know, it's the kind of team the Phillies were. And they kind of dedicated – I don't think kind of. They did. They dedicated their run to him uh, last year's run. And he showed up in Cincinnati. I mean, showed up against the Cincinnati Reds for a four-game series in Philadelphia in August, and he was in the dugout. And I watched. I was there. I was able to see it. I watched Aaron Nola talk to him about pitching for 45 minutes. I watched Schwarber come over and sit down and talk to him. And and I watched Sosa come over, and I watched Marsh, and I watched, you know, every single player, Wheeler, they all took to him. And I go, this is something unusual. And I did not think Corey was ever going to pass. He had 100 matches. He was going home that after that series to get the bone marrow. He had three matches in his own family, which is unheard of. Everything looked good for him. Well, he went home and they, they, they uh, did a blood test on him and told him there was nothing else they could do. The cancer had spread and he had to go back to Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. Well, this kid's attitude was so good. He goes, well, at least I get to see the Phillies. And uh, he went back home and he was coming to games. He came to the last couple games of the season. Uh, but then the non-Hopkins lymphoma turned into acute lymblastic leukemia. It had gotten in his spine, I believe, heading to the brain. And he had taken a turn for the worse. Um, you know, things were getting bad. and But he kept a positive attitude. And um, I think that team was just inspired. But 
I've looked at that team and they've never forgot him. They've ordered T-shirts. They wear them. I have one on right now, Corey's Promise. Uh, Corey was getting worse. And then, uh, you know, he he was a big baseball fan. He he wanted autographs. He sent me down to get Strider's autograph when we're playing the Braves at the – at, at 15 minutes before game time. And I'm like, well, Corey, I can't do this. And John Cruck goes, why not? I said, gee, thanks, Johnny. And I'm running down to the Braves clubhouse to get the autograph, you know. But uh, he touched a lot of people. He touched an awful lot of people. And the one thing that I will say about this kid is he made an impact that I, ho- I would hope that all of us can to someone in life. I mean, to everyone that he ran into, he touched in ways that I can't even explain. Uh, on his mask card, I'm going to share this in closing, but I do got something I would like to share with you. Um, on his mask card, he put this. I think his mother may have found this off of his uh, off of something that he wrote. Like he wrote notes about being a great major league baseball player and about how to how positive he was going to be and how he was going to make it. But on the back of his mask card. He says, I hope no one has to go through what I have been through to see how beautiful life is. But I hope everyone is able to see how beautiful life is the way I see it. And I think that's one of the most profound things that a person laying in is dying. And he he told his dad the Thursday before he passed, Dad, I'm all right. God has me. And that's what's on the bands that we wear. But it was a wonderful story. But to me, it doesn't end because he's in heaven. Yeah, And if there's baseball in heaven, there's quite a few of them up there. But I will say this, that this uh, this kid just didn't touch me, but he touched that team. And that's the that's the something that that's the part that I I've talked to Will about. I'll always be indebted to this team. This team's special to me that we've had here the last couple of years because I've never seen anybody reach out to a kid like they did and the family and make the difference. The interesting thing about Corey and our relationship was um, we walk into a room one day when he was there and Larry Boa's in the room and it's a suite and Boa goes, who's that kid? And uh, I said, that's Corey Phelan, the kid that has the cancer. He goes, oh, okay. And the next thing you know, him and, him and Corey are talking and man, they wouldn't, they just kept going. They talked baseball for nine innings and the next day ditto and the next day ditto and the next thing did next thing. And and then when Corey came back to Philadelphia and had to go to children's hospital, uh, Chrissy, Christy, his mom, Christy put uh, me and Larry on the uh, list to come and see Corey. So we would go up and see Corey. And as soon as we'd get up there, I'd look at Christy and I'd say, ah, we're out of this. The baseball game's on. They're going to be talking baseball. They're going to be you know, asking each other questions. Would you throw that pitch, not that pitch? So to see him and Larry Boa um, get together like that and see the impact that he had on Boa and vice versa was pretty amazing also. It was a, it was, uh, it was neat to see that. And uh, I finally talked to the knockdown pitch about him, but it was a little late. But uh, a kid that really – his infectious smile, his selflessness uh, – I think he taught the minor league guys a lot when he was there. And I think he taught the big league guys a lot too. Yeah, That's a great story. Yeah. Great story, Dickie. I think that embodies a lot of what we were trying to talk about today in that one, one 19-year-old young man. Uh, guys, what, what last questions we have for Dickie? We were, uh, we're getting close to wrap. We've kept him for an hour and 20 minutes today. And 
probably could do another hour and 20 with the experiment. But we do have to have you come back, Dickie. Are you okay for that? Oh, yeah. I awesome. enjoyed this. Yeah, this is uh, Mark and Will have tremendous relationships and their their podcast, like our others, but their podcast uh, seems to stream these special relationships regardless of the topic. And you, you are, uh, certainly embody that today. So, Mark and Will, any last questions for Dickie before we sign off here? Um, you know, just the last question I had is, you know, we know that the parents can have both good and bad influences on their kids. You know, how do you get players to handle that and take, you know, set parameters as they get older? Because it's very tough to do um, uh, and, and be able to handle their own careers and, and know how to set boundaries. Well, I get to know parents quite a bit, especially with kids that I work with. Um, you know, you talk about families, uh, Corey's family, uh, Chris and Christy are two of the greatest parents I've ever met in life. And I always tease them. I go, I told Corey, I said, I'm jealous of your parents. And he would laugh, but, um, not all parents are like that. We know that, but most, most kids, you know, especially a lot of Latin kids, they, their parents are everything to them. Um, they, they respect their parents. They believe in their parents and, if you get a ball player that has a tough life and I'm dealing with him about his, if he's had tough parents, it happens. You have parents that are not so great. And what I try to tell them is that's your parents. That's not you. You can respect them or you can even love them and not respect them. Uh, but you have to move on with your life and you have to love them in the way that they are, but have your own life. I've had I can't share on here some of the things that I've had and maybe it'd be another topic uh, down the road because it'd probably take me too long, but I've had parents have done horrible things by trying to live through their kids. And I've had parents that had no influence in their kids growing up, no relationship with their kids. And then they sign a contract and it's for quite a bit of money. And all of a sudden now they want to be their parents. And that really is a difficult one to deal with. And that person, whoever it may be, that player is going, wow, now I got my mom, my dad in my life. This is great. And yet it's very confusing. And most of the time it's not so great. So those are times that you will have to get together with them and basically tell them, hey, you're, 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 you're an adult now. This is your life. You're going to get married at some point. So it's time to start being responsible and accountable for your life and make sure that you, uh, uh, it's okay to be who you are. That's, that's, that's great advice. And uh, Dickie, thanks so much for coming. And Mark and Will, thanks for another great show here. I think uh, we're in episode 347 now in our network. It's hard to believe last year at this time we had just a shade over 4,000 subscribers and followers. Now we're up to 57,000 in part because of the relationships coming through like this. Uh, just want to thank our listeners too. 57,000 listeners, as I said, make sure you give these guys five stars, wonderful stories, wonderful messages for our audience grassroots all the way up to major league players and uh give them five stars write some great comments so we can positively battle the analytics of the podcast world like they're trying to do in baseball today support our new friends blackout coffee capital d-a-v-i-d 20 at checkout get you 20 percent off uh, your coffee purchase 15 percent in perpetuity uh we appreciate their friendship and mark and will great show today just a uh, real voice of the game day at the art common sense pitching with wiley and will we got coach sal up next We've got our newest show up later today, a college football show that's going to be debuting today. So you guys will be privy to privy to that as well. So 
Thanks again, guys. Yeah, thank you, Dickie. Thanks for thank sharing your life, man. We appreciate thank it. Thank you, thank you. That was that was some awesome. great insights. Keep on kicking them down. Or it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to. The people I.